I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society. Reveal the embedded codes and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, CEO and founder of Fairphone, Bas Van Abel. If you want to behave in a different way in a system that's basically sociopathic, if you want to move as a company who incorporates human values in their behavior, is that possible? That's how we started. Boss will be sharing his vision of social change as a design challenge. We can do this if we really want, but we must try. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. Thanks to a playwright friend of mine with connections to Broadway, I got to see Hamilton this weekend. I actually brought Stephen Bartolome and his wife, Claire, to, uh, uh, to see the show with me this weekend. And uh, it was quite something. I'll tell you, I, there's been so much hype. It was really hard to just sit and, and do this thing. Uh, <laughs> You know, because you're expecting so much. So many of, particularly my good leftist uh, uh, patriotic friends have just loved Hamilton and, and do everything in a Hamiltonian way. There's a way to wrap Hamilton for almost any cause. Uh, so, you know, I was excited to see this thing and there was tremendous virtuosity in, in how it was put together and performed. But I was uncomfortable throughout and I wanted to figure out why I was so uncomfortable, and maybe that would help me understand uh, part of what's going on with uh, progressive America today and why we're having such trouble getting certain kinds of necessary traction. I mean, the first reason I was uncomfortable was I found out that the people next to me had spent $5,000 for their pair of tickets, and that was considered a good buy. You know, we were in these really good orchestra seats that, that playwrights can get, but still, $5,000 for a pair of tickets to a Broadway show is a little odd. It, it, was, it was a little nauseating. I mean, then I was thinking, well, what if instead of going, if I had put my tickets up on StubHub? So if I'd sort of greed for having $5,000, I'd put it right into the podcast and we'd be good for a couple of years. You know, so there was that uh, opening discomfort, but then there was also something else uh, under underlying all this. And 
I'm a theater person, so I respect theater. That's my background. That's my training. That was my my MFA is in theater directing. And I watched this thing, and uh, unlike most Broadway shows, I felt like there was technical mastery in this production that I couldn't do myself. You know, I couldn't direct a play that well. It was staged in in miraculous but very simple ways. The performers were all fabulous. You know, there were too many mics and it was a little tinny, the sound. For me, I like real uh, sound of real voices in a, in a theater. But the, the most thrilling part of it was that there were such great meaty parts for people of color. You know, usually on Broadway, people of color will have to play the people of color parts, the the maids and butlers, you know, they, you rarely see a uh, race-blind production of Hamlet or Macbeth. You know, you see black guys get to play Othello. <laughs> you know, there are very few kinds of parts for you know, Hispanic Americans and, and African Americans. So to see those people getting to play founding fathers of America, these, these heroic figures, was great. But the problem for me was that this same mixed-race casting reframed the Founding Fathers story in a way that the play rarely acknowledged. I had the sense that there was a kind of race-washing going on, where the casting of mixed-race people somehow legitimized and reframed the American Revolution as some kind of universal suffrage. There was no acknowledgement except one line two-thirds of the way through the show, no acknowledgement that these men were all slave owners, you know, that those were the people who were building America. So I was a little bit concerned that Kids would look at this and think, oh, great, you know, black people and Hispanic people, they've always been just accepted as part of America. Because they haven't. They've been, they've been suffering. The fact that we finally get to the 21st century and can put a mixed race cast together only now and that that's newsworthy, that means that they weren't accepted before. You know, and... Everybody loves this thing. Everybody loves this play. Even Obama. There's all these photos even in the lobby of Obama watching the play. And that was sort of part of the news of it. And it's certainly hard to criticize Obama right now in the midst of something so much worse than anything his administration could could dole out. But, you know, what was the main thing Obama did? You know, Obama came into office and he bailed out the banking system with government money, with taxpayer money. And that's Hamiltonian. That's what Alexander Hamilton's history is. Strong central government, strong central bank, preserve the wealth of the banking class over that of the people and promote the the centrality of New York, New York as the city of money and power. So here we are with a new unassailable, because of its casting, an unassailable version of the same old American origin myth, as if the greatness of our nation were a result of its neoliberal roots. That's the real problem with this play. That's the real problem with Hamilton. And uh, sure, neoliberalism had a certain amount of elasticity to it, and it allowed the growth of the industrial corporate America that we're living in today. But make no mistake, more than anything else, Hamilton is a Broadway musical. This is not some leftist play at La Mama. It is a big, beautiful, high-octane, high-budget Broadway smash hit with touring companies and productions throughout the country being staged, you know, in Chicago and L.A. and everywhere else. This is big business. And I don't begrudge the people who love it. You know, particularly people for whom the show is a gateway to history, to theater, to multiculturalism, even to slowly spoken rap. You know, if this Broadway play makes rap and black music and hip-hop friendly to people who've been afraid of it, then that's a good thing, too. But the final thing, I think, what really bothered me the most about it was what I've come to call, though, the West Wing effect. And I'm, I, 
I know the guy that thought up West Wing. It, he's a very good guy, and it was a beautiful show, and it had dialogue and walking and all sorts of stuff that was new to television. Terrific. Again, super high-quality stuff. I could not do it myself. But the West Wing also served throughout the Bush years as a fantasy to keep the left distracted and inspired during eight years of George W. The West Wing was a fantasy of what we wanted to believe was going on in the White House with a guy like uh, Martin Sheen as president and all these brilliant, articulate people around him trying to face the true problems of our era. And even in the last episode, we get a Hispanic president. Jimmy Smith gets elected president. And the first thing he does is he invites Alan Alda, who was the Republican uh, contender, is his uh, competitor, and he asks Alan Alda, this Republican, to be his secretary of state. And the guy doesn't really say yes or no yet, but then they get into this great a passionate discussion, this multidimensional discussion about the Middle East conflict. And the show kind of fades out on that. And you get the sense that, wow, they're even going to work together across the aisle in this new transcendent way. And it's a nice vision, admittedly a nice vision, but it's a distraction from reality. Likewise, right now, we want to believe that the original core commands of the U.S. Constitution included universal suffrage, economic equality, and racial harmony. We want to remember the Founding Fathers and Alexander Hamilton as a big, beautiful, hip-hop declaration of Team Human. But obscuring the reality of what they did and the racist, discriminatory, disempowering biases they actually programmed into our government, biases into which even Obama blindly followed, imperils us all at a moment we can't afford it. No, the job before us is not to retreat from this reality or to hide in a fantasy while we wait out a bad administration, but to fix it. And one man looking to do that is today's guest, a hero of mine, Bas Van Abel, CEO and founder of Fairphone. We are Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Hey, I'm Alex Rivetta. I'm on Team Human. I'm L.A. Kaufman, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Mushan Zaraviv, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Caroline Jack, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, founder of Fairphone, Bas Van Abel. A great pleasure to, to connect with you. Well, likewise, likewise. Believe me. So Fairphone, Fairphone was launched as an experiment, really, originally, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really, a, I, you, you could even say it was an experiment on how the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, my, my background is, is design, art, uh, but I also have a background in technology. So I've been working a lot with putting technology in a meaningful context and to find how you can use technology actually uh, to, to do meaningful stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I know you know through technology you can you can lose yourself in a way. You know you you have people that actually created atom bombs, not knowing that what they were creating them at the time they were creating it. So there's something weird going on with the making process and technology itself, uh, which fascinated me. And also you know looking at technology in a critical way always has has been uh, one of the things I was interested in. And you know I've, as a designer, I've I've sent files to China and got you know, containers with stuff back. And, uh, <laughs> and it's always a weird feeling, and especially with you know, the, the, you know, uh, being involved a lot with the digital fabrication, fab labs, fabrication laboratories all around the world. Uh, more and more, it, it 
occurred to me how much we were alienated, how much we are alienated from, from the making processes, but also as a consumer from the design processes and you know, from everything basically uh, behind the products we use. And I've, I've had that already with open source software development, but you know, really experienced that through the open hardware kind of work I've been doing in, in the last couple of years, in the last 10 years. And at a point, there was a question from a friend of mine who asked me, you know, Boss, you've been, been critical towards technology, you've been using technology in a social cultural context, and you've been involved with the making process and fabrication. But did you know that there were also uh, minerals being mined where there's conflicts related to the minerals that are being mined? And, uh, and millions of people have, have died in the last 10, 15 years you know, in conflicts related to the minerals we use in our electronic devices. So there is, you know, technology goes really far away. And, and if you think about it, if you're talking about alienation and wars going on in Congo mm-hmm. uh, around minerals, that's, I think, you know, it, it doesn't get further than that. Because we, we, right. know, there's, we know there's people dying in Africa, but, um, you know, what, is, <laughs> what does it have to do with, you know, me as a consumer and what is the relationship with me, between me and, as a consumer and the stuff that comes from the ground? And then, right. I mean, there's a long history of that, of course. Yeah, you know, the, yeah, the yeah. colonial empires uh, used slaves to get minerals and sugar and coffee and everything else that was brought back to Europe. And in some sense, the invention of the corporation was really just a way to uh, externalize the human impact of consumerism, of early consumerism. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wonder, if, you know, it's not, it's not done. I, I don't think anyone has thought about creating a system where we can make, you know, where we can externalize all these things. You know, I, I think it has to do as well with the complexity that is needed to be able to create these things. And if you, if you look at the fact that, um, you know, if you look at your phone, just, you know, if you hold it in your hand, and, and I, I, I do that <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> so if you just look at your phone and you think about the fact that this thing actually just comes from the ground, you know, it's really stuff that, you know, stones, it's rocks that we took from the ground. And, you know, as human beings, we are able, if we work together to create this device, in the end. It's brilliant. You know, it's a system that is actually able to create stuff that we don't understand as an individual. And that is, uh, that is nice, but it's mm-hmm. also, uh, you know, it's created some problems. And I think, you know, the externalization of these things is part of that. And what, what I try to do with Fairphone, and, and you know, you're right in that sense that it's an experiment. It's finding out what are these relationships between you know, what happens in the mines in Congo what, uh, and, and having that device in your hand. When, you know, what's happening behind the scenes? What's the dark matter, in a way, of the stuff that we as consumers have available to us? And that dark matter is, is people, it's choices, it's dilemmas, it's systems, it's, you know, it's all these things, uh, it's wars, it's conflicts, and these things are all connected to it. You know, there's 1,200 components in a the phone, there's 80 mm-hmm. mineral, more than 80 minerals, so it's basically the whole world that is involved into making that phone uh, available to you. Right. I mean, and even though I guess you could say the same thing about a Coca-Cola, you know, oh, sure. <laughs> between, yeah, yeah. It's, between it's, the it's, bottle and the stuff, but... Uh, yeah. But the phone may be more, more so, especially because people have such a, an intimate relationship with this device that it became a really good model, really, or a good, in some ways, a, a, a Rosetta Stone for yeah. decoding the sort of the global industrialization process. Exactly. And so then you started with the phone and said, well, what if, you know, how could a phone be made in a fair way. I mean, I guess originally you were thinking, how could a phone be made without any slavery at all, right? Yeah, yeah. We already knew that this was kind of a strategically naive exercise because in, in a way, if you want to create a, a 100% fair phone, you, you have to create world peace first. So it's, it's, it's kind of a big <laughs> challenge. It's also about, it, it's, it's more on a philosophical level, even if you talk about fairness and the question about what is fair and what is not fair. You know, if you travel through cultures and, and time and individuals and collectives, there's different views on what is fair. We have, a, you know, we have some common understanding of, about what is unfair, but um, you know, what was, was fair 100 years ago is definitely not the same uh, as, as, as what it is now. 
it's an interesting you know, study to just find out you know what along the way and using that artifact to find out you know what how people perceive these things and how we can create an improvement in you know the system failure that is basically at the core of uh, of all the unfair things that people do recognize and that was really about you know bringing that making things more tangible and creating that relationship between uh, what's happening uh, in the supply chain and you as a consumer. I think that's a really good starting point in thinking differently about uh, you know, the, the, the things, that, the, well, the influence we have on, on what's happening in the world. So why, why uh, for those who didn't follow the whole story, why didn't it just work? Why can't you just say, well, if people are willing to spend a little bit more on a phone, we'll just get it rather than from African slave children being sent at gunpoint into caves in the Congo, we'll just get it from, you know, wealthier countries or uh, we'll pay more for this stuff and then make your phone with nothing bad. Yeah, so, so it, it might work, actually. We could even, you know, you can try to make a fair phone in your backyard and work on it for the next couple of hundred years and then show uh, that it's possible and then put it in a museum and say, you know, there's no child labor, there's not this, not that, not that. It was not the intent we had. The intent was to really surface also the problems that are part of that system that we've put in place, which is our economic system. By doing that, we, we just followed the routes that most of the industry actually is following. And we said, you know, the, the challenge is not so much to make a phone, and by now it, I know it's pretty damn difficult to make a phone, but the real challenge would be if you want to behave in a different way in a system that's basically sociopathic, if you want to move as a company who want, you know, incorporates human values in their behavior, um, is that possible? And, and that was, that's how we started. So that means that we did not avoid Congo, but we said, you know, we're going, we're going to work in Congo and we're going to, we're going to show, you know, what, what can be done and how to improve things. So we're going to look for conflict-free mining mines. Doesn't mean that, you know, uh, that we, we didn't have child labor. The first thing, to be honest, the first thing, I think the first expenses we had when we started Fairphone, when we were, when we were still a project, was bribing the Minister of Communication of Congo to be able to film in the mines. Mm. And, and these are the dilemmas you run into. And these are the things that we hide. Companies like hiding things. And why? Because, you know, you're vulnerable as a company uh, in terms of risk. And, you know, you try to mitigate, mitigate risk because if you, you know, if you don't do that, you might, might lose customers or you get a bad reputation. And um, in the end, we all know that this stuff is happening. So we focus on not avoiding problems, but really following the system as it is, and then trying to get improvements through our own behavior and through also you know, inspiring other companies and creating a space to do things differently. And, and that, is, you know, that is basically going also, going to Congo, going to, you know, through China, uh, facing the Chinese realities in the, in the work floor uh, there, and also you know, all, the, all the difficulties that come with democratic uh, setups through, you know, for, for uh, unions and these kind of things in the factories. We look at how we, how we can also address the problems with consumerism. You know, it's, a, it's as simple as that. If, you, if, if people are able to, to use their phone twice as long, then we only need to produce half the amount of phones, which is probably yeah. the best thing you can do from an environmental point of view. But it's, it's not per se good for business to say, I'm going to only produce half the amount of phones. Right. Because, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's environmentally better for someone to keep the iPhone they have than to throw out their iPhone in order to buy a Fairphone. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so then you come back to the core of what, what you're doing. I, I, we didn't start Fairphone to solve all the problems in the world. We have to look at it from a holistic point of view, and we have to look at the system. That means that if you're going to support conflict-free mining, if we're, if we're going to support fair trade mining, uh, you know, we have projects in Peru as well, we also have to look at uh, how we can actually stimulate recycling of these materials and also have to look at how we can use less of the, materi the materials because in the end, mining is bad for the environment. So it doesn't make sense to put all your energy into these programs if you know that actually you're doing, you're not doing the right thing if you look at the bigger picture. So that also means that you have to set up, you know, and you, you get into philosophical discussions, which you have to deal with as a human being as well, which is, you know, how can I both look at my own 
benefits and the collective benefits at the same time? How can I unify these things? And that is also for a company a very difficult thing to do. And that's why you know the sociopath nature of of the systems we we put on you know the, the companies we set up is is not helping to uh, you know to create a more humane kind of economic system. Because right, but then you, I mean, in in microcosm, you kind of. Uh, recapitulated the process through which business itself was corrupted is too strong a word you relived the challenges of any business so you start out with this idea as an artist and then you you become the ceo maybe originally in quotes but eventually not in quotes you know you're the (laughs) ceo of a company with investors who put in money with customers who've ordered phones and put in money and have certain expectations and now you're balancing the the needs of a business which is backed by real people with the needs of of labor and the environment and ultimately it's uh it's an impossible dynamic at least if you're going to create something uh with a with a supply chain as advanced as a smartphone no yeah, it's 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 a tough business. <laughs> it's it's also one one of the one of the things I've learned. You know, I, I was sucked into this same system, and and the biggest lesson I've learned, I think, from doing this is that if you if you want to change the system by becoming part of the system, that means that you're going to be dictated by that same system to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I was actually checking the the euro dollar at least 30 times a day. I was worrying about money. I was thinking about investments. And that went on for, I think, at least a year, one and a half years. And I, I also see the beauty of it in a way, or the irony, you might say, that you start something and you say, we're going to be part of that system and we're going to, you know, to try to change it from within. The dilemmas you run into are the same dilemmas that any company would run into. The only thing is that we really, you know, we really wanted to, face these dilemmas as, as human beings. So that means that all the choices you make, and you know, just to give you an example, you know, choices of uh, paying your own personnel versus promising to pay the factory workers in China uh, a premium, if you have that kind of decisions you have to make and you've promised your consumers also to, uh, for example, deliver the phones on a certain, a certain time, and you also see that things, uh, you know, they, they, they move, things get delayed, but then the factory says, well, you know what, we can actually push our workers to work uh, overtime and then we will solve the problem. You know, those are the decisions that you have, actually have to think about. Okay, so what have we, why have we started this and why are we doing this? And then you decide, you know, let's not, not do overtime and let's not push this because that's basically what we can do as a company and how we can behave. But the result of that is that you get a lot of pressure from customers on, you know, why is my phone not here? And that's the crowdfunding that also uh, does that. But you're entering this, this, this nice kind of arena of, of, of dilemmas, which you have to embrace and you have to love them. But the weight can be very high if, you, if, you really wanna, if you're really part of that, uh, of that fight. Right. Well, as long as the impact of a business's decisions remain in the dark, then there's no real reason for a consumer not to want the fastest, cheapest, easiest solution. You know, all they're seeing is what's showing up in the mailbox or in the store. Uh, So, I mean, in some ways, the process, the, the, the entire project is about making this apparent, making this visible, and then changing the way consumers uh, approach, you know, what they get. Yeah, to give you a very nice example of what uh, I've had quite some discussions about, you know, the win-win and the not not having to do compromises. You know, sustainability and compromises should, you know, it should not drive compromises. You can actually, uh, you can, you can, you should be able to be sustainable and still have a great product. The question is, uh, you know, and really from my designer's point of view, is also what do we believe that is, you know, how do we define aesthetics? And you know, we, we love thin phones like we love thin people in a way you know we have electronic anorexia you might you might call it Uh, and what happens is that because of that we glue batteries to the inside of the phone we can't repair them we you know so the thinness the thickness actually of the phone is defined by by the aesthetics that we think we need but if you know that also that same aesthetics that push for thinner phones results in a product that cannot be repaired 
and that is you know ends up in a dump somewhere in Ghana for a second life you know where people have a, you know, use it for mm. a second life third life fourth life but they can't open it and they just burn the whole phone and all the toxic everything comes out because they don't have the equipment to do it properly you know that's the result of design decisions based on consumers not knowing the consequences about you know what they find aesthetic so if you know these things and the same goes for for fingerprints there's a long time that Anexan, which is a you know it's it's something that they use in the line to clean the glass of the of the phone after they've put it together so Anexan actually is the last step to make sure that you know when we receive the phone that there's no, no human fingerprints <laughs> on the product right. which is ridiculous because you take it out of the box the first thing you do is you touch the phone and there's a fingerprint on it so what happens is the Anexan, they found out that it's pretty toxic and that people, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people that got cancer out of using this stuff because we want to have a very clean, non-touched by human phone. Uh, people in the factory have health problems because they use stuff to clean it. And that is, you know, those, why not? And then I think, you know, why not make also technology human again? Why not have that fingerprint on the phone and make it part of the aesthetics? Why not have a picture on the phone of the girl testing the phone, you know, in the factory and uh-huh. make that part of the phone? Because I've been in, I've been in mines in Congo. I've been, you know, 60 meters deep under the ground, uh, handpicking stuff, you know, cobalt we use in, in our whole, whole, the, the whole sustainability industry in the, in, the, in the batteries. And, you know, these guys live there for three days in a row under the ground to get this stuff out of the ground we use in our devices. So it's, it is people that are part of making this product. So why hide it? And I think that can help us to also, you know, create a more, uh, create more attachment to that product and to also make sure that we take more, more responsibility through having that personal attachment with that product. It, it works with foods. So why, why, why don't we use the same principles for, for electronics? Well, I suppose because if it really can't totally work, then aren't we playing a losing game? You know, less slavery, I mean, yes, less slavery is better than more slavery, but if we want to live in a smartphone-enabled universe, must we accept the destruction of the environment and the slavery of people? Yeah, yeah. You, you, so there you, go, you get to the, the more philosophical thing about how to balance... Um, the simple fact that if you know by creating you're also destroying and that is you know even more true for a company that creates products so and it's also true for human being so I, I don't know if you know that the Jain, the Jain in India there, there's, there's like this religious group of people that that actually uh, wipe uh, or swipe clean the, the floor in front of them so that when they walk, they don't kill uh, the bacteria on the floor mm-hmm. and, the, and the insects. So they really think about, you know, not you know, having a little, as little as possible footprint. Um, so by being a human being, by being in this world, you also, you know, you create and you destroy. Once you know that, and once you have that incorporated also in, in the thinking of a company, that means that if you, for example, and that is something that cannot happen at this moment in time where we have the system set up with shareholders you know, pushing for, for profits. If a company, right. the right thing for a company to do is to say, next year, I'm going to sell half the amount of product and you know, my challenge is to stay as profitable as we are now. And what you're doing basically is to say, well, I'm going to challenge myself to disconnect the use of resources from my business model. So that in the end, you know, the people that use that product can use it longer. And of course, you know, if you use a phone longer, you, know, you can still use it. You can use a phone for five years. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're, they're very well capable of doing that. It's just that you have, you have to support the software. You have, to, you, have to do, you have to set up an ecosystem around that. But the biggest thing is, you know, make sure that we don't push these phones. And on the other hand, you, know, you need consumers that actually want to have that phone for a longer time. So these things are possible. And I'm, I think if we get to that kind of, understanding that it's very simple step to say we are going to consume less that you know a lot of things will change and the industry will follow but 
until we take that until we don't take that step we're stuck in this linear system of growth where everything is dry, you know driven by the fact that we think that by consuming we can get a better welfare which is i don't think the right thing at this moment in time because we know we're ruining also our environment right so then i mean then the question becomes what's the best uh, point of access to this you know collective human psychic uh, i think problem. i think it's I think it's spirituality. <laughs> I, can, mm-hmm. I, can, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna make it too vague, but I do think that we've pushed, you know, we live in a materialistic way, very individual, and we think that science can solve everything. We are not able to understand the full complexity of a phone, you know, because we need each other to make, you know, we need each other to make that product. Without each other, we're not able to do it. So how do we even, think that we are able to understand you know the complexity of something that's bigger than our own life which to me sustainability is sustainability is thinking about something that is bigger than my own birth and my own death so that makes it spiritual already because you have to think about the collective benefit and the connections between people and nature and everything that is around us instead of just thinking about me. Right, but that's hard. I mean, when people are perceive themselves as under threat, they generally, they move into more of an individualistic fight-or-flight response. And the technologies we're using are really good at, at uh, creating an even more individualistic uh, understanding of the world. So it's, yeah. it's hard to do it through the... Uh, through the menu of items that we currently have around us. And it seems it's only possible, I mean, as you're saying it, through some sort of spiritual awakening or reconnection of people with other people. You know, that's why I started this show, Team Human, to yeah. try to, you know, reinforce this understanding of uh, human collective action as as the most essential. Yeah, I, I, th- I think, you know, I, I don't have the answer to that. I just think that some things need to happen on that level. And I, I, it really helped me to look at politics in a way. And you know, politics, I think if you describe the space between the individual and the collective, then you could say that politics kind of tries to bridge that. If you look at that way, at politics, that means that you don't have to be a politician to drive politics. You know, if you are able as a person, as a designer, to bridge the gap between the collective interest and the, and the personal interest, if you are able you know, to do that as a consumer, you don't have to outsource politics anymore. When you look at it that way, it's stories, you know, good stories that are basically carrying the connection between those two things that we have you know, always been very, very difficult as human beings to unify, you know, the collective and the individual. I think that stories can have a very strong kind of power to connect this and to make sure that we get this, this understanding of that we need to, we need to take care of both. And, and that is basically what we're trying to do also with Fairphone. It's not only about you know, showing what's possible in terms of uh, the improvements. And you know, we're doing a lot of projects in the supply chain. But in the end, it's also about storytelling. It's about creating, you know, creating touch points for people to feel a connection with. Right. Have you ever, I mean, you would think that with the publicity and the, the amount of story that's surrounded Fairphone, that someone like, uh, you know, Google, when they're starting the Pixel, you know, would yeah. approach you and say, oh, boss, why don't you lead our you know, our smartphone revolution is so that we can be something other than Apple and, and uh, Samsung yeah. and what everyone else is doing. But they didn't, I guess. Well, we, we, had, we had quite some discussion with, with, with a lot of companies and we worked together also with, with some of these companies on the supply chain uh, and the value chain on looking at how we can actually collaborate on, on these, these um, uh, social programs. But our independence is key to the success we have. Right. Um, so that means that we become also less interesting in that respect for big corporations to say, well, let's just get that brand and, you know, uh, and, and use that to show that we also care about these things. Because at the moment that happens, we might actually also lose part of the credibility that we've built up by being an independent company that has grown through, uh, mainly through crowdfunding. 
Um, and that means that we've been, you know, that we, we, we survived and we are here and we grew because people believe in us doing it the way we are doing it. Right. And there are a few, I mean, there, you can always count them on one hand, but there are a few things in our digital reality that have been uh, approached this way, whether it's, you know, Wikipedia or open source, uh, yeah, um, yeah. You know, Ethereum, maybe uh, uh, the, the guys down in, in New Zealand doing uh, um, uh, in spiral. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a few uh, sort of proofs of concept that we could we could do this another way. And in some ways, these are the most resilient projects. Yeah going on more resilient than apple or google i would argue in terms of long-term sustainability but i i feel like in some ways we're we're not at war but we're competing against some really strong stories and institutions oh definitely but i also believe that these institutions uh, in the longer term will have to change and create more purpose as well uh, you know, to, to use the word purpose, but I mean, they, they, you know, people, first of all, I don't think people will want to work for companies if they don't have a, you know, a true purpose in the core of their business. I don't think shareholders can, you know, keep investing uh, tax money in these companies for a very long time anymore if there's no real purpose. And, you know, lastly, the, the people will not buy any of these products anymore. It's just a time issue. Are we able to do this in time before we, you know, we, we, we ruin everything. Right, before and, we destroy our planet. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's not our planet. I, I, I think, you know, the planet wouldn't give a shit if we die as human beings. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's, it's just us, you know. Do we, are we able in time to, to, to survive as people? And, and, and that is, uh, you know, it's up to us. And I think, you know, we've put in systems that we, we you know, there's not one person in any company and it's not even companies that want to have wars in Congo. Believe me, it, it's, not, it's not as simple as that. There's no company in the world that wants you know, people in China to jump off the roofs because they have, uh, they have uh, you know, heavy workloads. It's, 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 you know, it's part of what we've created um, and what we agreed to working on. And I think you know, if we are able to set up something as brilliant as the economic system, as it's, you know, we, we have more to consume than the Queen of England had before you know, the Industrial Revolution. So there's something really nice happens, but we have to look at how we can make that fit uh, what we know now. And that is something we have to do together, and that is something that, that will happen. And these companies, I think, you know, we ha you have also on hardware, you have, like, you have Patagonia, for example, which, which, which is doing great things as well as a company, showing that you, you, you don't have to go public as well to, to be able to do your business. But I, you know, for every company and also for us, uh, I wouldn't exclude uh, working with, you know, the big companies because we, we, we share the same supply chain. And I wouldn't exclude also really, uh, you know, doing something with Google, as you just said. It's just that our independence to be able to drive things forward the way that we think that it has most effect in, uh, you know, creating that change also and catalyzing that change that we needed that is you know most important to us and then how we get there is really about you know what what can create the most impact and to that question though you know if we've got you know 10 or 20,000 uh, willing and able people listening to this you know what what are the first steps for them do you think you know it's not it's not a matter of oh uh, buy better stuff i mean maybe it's buy less stuff but um... it's exactly it's, it's as simple as that buy less stuff if you buy stuff then buy the stuff from which you know that the company supports you to keep the stuff longer. There's so much things being made that are repairable. There's so many things that are available that, that are more durable. You know, so so if, you do, if you just look at these things that are available to you and you can extend the lifetime of that product and, uh, and then beyond that, you can look at how things are made. But those are, those are really good starts. 
Right. And that's why, I mean, you, you present it almost as a spiritual challenge. You know, the, the old meditation, you know, the Dalai Lama used to tell people when they, before they eat the food on their plate, you know, to think about all the people and processes that were involved in getting these, these foods to your plate. Where do they come yeah. from? Who made them? That once you begin that process, you start to see the world in as the interconnected uh, set of relationships that it is rather than just when it entered your your field of, of vision yeah and and the beauty is that when you know i started fairphone with the question is it possible to get that story of you know what's happening in the mines in congo all the way to the consumer and when you start doing that and when you go to the mines and you feel that stone in your hand and you know that's the start you feel the economic system. You really feel it. You know that somebody is, you know, you feel that somebody is working there with the promise that there's at the end of the supply chain, somebody buying something that makes it worth for them to dig into the ground and then, then somebody paying for it. And then, you know, the whole payment system goes in trust that somebody pays for it, somebody pays for it, somebody pays for it, somebody pays for it. And in the end of that whole supply chain, there's a consumer buying it. So that means that that consumer, if that consumer wants it to happen, that it will happen in a certain way, because that's how the whole economic system is built up. It's based on the trust that a consumer can buy it. And then if you think about the role of marketing, if we just redefine marketing, not something that, you know, that you do to make people buy stuff they actually don't need, but if you define marketing as a storytelling uh, mechanism to create that connection between what's the product about and how it got into existence and the consumer, then I'm pretty hopeful that we are able to make that whole supply chain, which is too complex to understand, but to make it tangible and understandable on an emotional and, 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 and you know, kind of a feeling level. Right. I mean, by holding that little rock, you know, that that communicates more than 20,000 pages of, of screen. <laughs> screen yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, and that's, no, the, yeah. you know, and that's really the object of the game here, I think, is to uh, somehow to to retrieve people's experience of being human, of breathing, of their feet on the ground, of looking into other people's eyes. It's that it's that very, you know, local um, sensibility, not that all economics has to be local, but that your body is local <laughs> and, exactly. everybody, yeah, yeah, yeah. and everybody else's is too. Exactly. I mean, what I'll be interested to see is as people become more conscious and less consumerist and they, they don't need as much stuff, then how do we slowly pivot the economy towards a more sustainable economic model rather than the growth-based one? You know, if, if, you know, if, if we uh, invented a genuinely renewable energy source today, um, that's really bad for the economy as we know it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the problem, yeah. You know, that's yeah. when the gunships come out. But, yeah. uh, and, you know, that's what I'm working on uh, on the other side is, you know, to try to come up with economic stories that are compelling, you know, to shareholders and to companies for them to understand that, oh, I could have ongoing sustainable revenue. And if we're not all in competition to see who grows the fastest, we can mm -hmm. all actually have a much better time and more profit. But it's a it's a hard argument to make when they're just so committed to the next quarter. No, that's it. And, and then you get into, you know, the systemic uh, level again, and I, I do think we need to. You know, it's, it's not only consumers that, of course, can uh, um, can support this change. It's also the shareholders. It's also you know, it's legislation. If you look at uh, what they've they've done in um, in Sweden, they they just cut taxes on on repairs. So that means that they actually stimulate you to repair, and it becomes more cheaper to repair than actually to buy something new. And I think it's brilliant because it's a very simple, effective way of, of, of having people to keep their products longer. And uh, if, you, if you think about all these things, you know, how, how quick can we put in place uh, with the, the things we already have? Because we know that, you know, of course, we can, we can go, you know, we can aim for a revolution and that we change things really fast. But we also know that changing fast is also going to, well, like you said, you know, the guns will come out and, uh, and there will be resistance. So, so how, of course, we, you have to acknowledge that there is, there's always a 
a kind of a, a movement where there, you always have to deal, you, know, you have the, the front movement and you have the back movement. And the front movement is always, you know, they want change, they want something to happen fast, they want, you know, they're, they're pulling everyone in. Uh, and the back movement, well, they have to be on board as well. You, don't, you want to give them the feeling that they are able to actually take these steps without, without losing what, who they are. I think that that means that you know you have to, you know, the systemic approach is actually uh, the right way to to go at it. Well, that's why uh, we need some good, uh, you know, design solutions, as Buckminster exactly. Fuller would say. You know, design solutions which are both you know art and engineering, uh, exactly. yeah, yeah. with uh, with embedded embedded narratives, embedded uh, uh, stories about uh, how people live and and how we can uh, maybe live longer by doing things together rather than constantly competing and shutting our eyes to the impact of our choices. But, yeah. uh, you, you know, you, you, uh, you and what you've done are an inspiration to, to many of us, you know, particularly your, your commitment to doing something real. You know, this is not a thought experiment. This is, you know, as real as real gets. And <laughs> Yeah, believe me, this. Yeah. I know, I mean, and that's why. I mean, obviously, it took its its physical and emotional toll on you, and and because uh, you're a thinking, feeling, open uh, human being. But um, thankfully, you've uh, decided to stay that way, and to and to you know to stick with the cause here um, on behalf of all of us. Well, thank you. Most of all, I'm having a great and great experience no matter what happens. Right. And I guess that's the best lesson for everybody, that it's this is actually the most divine fun you can have on the planet oh, right now. Oh, I'm, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Oh, and finally, for those who, who, whose phones are currently broken and are in the U.S., when is, when is uh, Fairphone coming to the U.S.? So we're, we're aiming actually for 2018. So that is, that is a bit of the time. So we, are, we, we have plans to go to the U.S. and we're preparing for it. Uh, beautiful. Well, thanks so much for being on Team Human. It, uh, it's a terrific thrill for, for all of us. Thanks a lot. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining Team Human. Before we go, I want to give a special shout out to our friends at Green Rabbit Bread, who are not only regular listeners, but thanks to Team Humanist Suzanne Sloman, also monthly supporters to our efforts. This show is staffed entirely by volunteers, yes, including me, but we've still got plenty of expenses and our productions would not be possible or quite as meaningful without the participation of teammates like Suzanne. We love you. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. If you want to hear us on the radio, let us know or connect us with your local NPR, community, or college station. You are on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.